0: Hello, I'm Byron Reese. I am the host of Voices in AI. If you're interested in the topics we discuss in these podcasts, I'd urge you to check out my newest book. It's called The Fourth Age. It's about conscious computers and artificial intelligence and the future of work and jobs and all of the topics we cover here on Voices in AI. It comes out uh, next spring, but you can pre-order it now on Amazon or wherever else you order books from. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM, and I'm Byron Reese. Today our guest is Nikola Danilov. Nikola started the Singularity weblog and hosts the wildly popular Singularity.fm podcast. He has been called the Larry King of the Singularity. He writes under the name Socrates or to the Bill and Ted fans out there, Socrates. Welcome to the show, Nikola.
1: Thanks for having me, Byron. It's my pleasure.
0: So let's begin with what Is the singularity?
1: Well, there are probably as many definition flavors as there are people or experts on the field out there, but for me personally the singularity is the moment when machines first catch up and eventually surpass humans in terms of intelligence.
0: What does that mean exactly, surpass humans in intelligence?
1: Well, what happens to you when your toothbrush is smarter than you?
0: Well, right now, it's much smarter than me on how long I should brush my teeth.
1: <laughs> yes, and that's true for most of us. Uh, how long, how much pressure you should exert and things mm. like that. It knows so, very.
0: It, it gives very bad relationship advice though. So I guess you can't say it's smarter than me yet, right?
1: Right, N- not about relationships anyway, but about the duration of uh, brush time it is and that's the whole idea behind the singularity is that uh, basically we are going to expand the intelligence of most things around us. So now we have watches, but they're becoming smart watches. We have cars, but they're becoming smart cars, and we have smart thermostat and smart appliances and smart buildings and smart everything, and that means that the intelligence of all those previously done things is going to continue expanding, while unfortunately our own personal intelligence or our intelligence as a species is not.
0: And in what sense is it a singularity?
1: It's a singularity. Okay, so let me talk about the roots of the word. So uh, the word singularity uh, The origin of the word singularity comes from mathematics, uh, where it basically is a problem with undefined answer, so five divided by zero, for example, or in physics, where basically it signifies a black hole, that's to say a place where there's a rupture in the fabric of time-space, and the laws of the universe don't hold true as we know them. Um, And so in the technological sense, we're borrowing the term to signify the moment where humanity stops being the smartest species on our planet and machines surpass us. And therefore, beyond that moment, we are going to be looking into a black hole of our future because our current models fail to be able to provide sufficient uh, predictions as to what happens next. So everything that we have already is kind of going to have to change. And we don't know which way things are going to uh, go, which is why we're calling, calling it in a way like a black hole, because we you cannot see beyond the event horizon of a black hole.
0: Well, if you can't see beyond it, give us some flavor of what you think is going to happen this side of the singularity? What are we going to see gradually or rapidly happen in the world uh, before it happens?
1: Well, you're going to see, as I said, one thing is the smartification of everything around us. So one, right now, we're still living in a pretty dumb universe. But the idea is that as things get to have more and more intelligence, including our toothbrushes, our cars, everything around us, our fridges, our TVs, our computers, you know, our tables, uh, everything, uh, then th- that's one thing that's going to keep happening until we have the last stage, according to Ray Kurzweil, where, quote, the universe wakes up and everything becomes smart and we end up with even things like smart dust. Uh, Another thing will be the merger of man and machine. So if you look at the younger generation, for example, they're practically inseparable from their smartphones. Um, And of course, it used to be the case that a computer uh, used to take the size of a building. And by the way, those computers were even weaker in terms of processing power than our smartphones are today. Uh, Even the Apollo program uh, used a a much uh, less powerful machine to send astronauts to the moon than what we have today in our pockets. However, that uh, change is not going to to stop right there, but the next step is that those machines are going to actually move inside of our body. So they used to be uh, inside of buildings, then they went on our body, uh, in our pockets, and they're becoming what's called nowadays wearables, wearable technology. But tomorrow, it will not be wearable anymore because it will be embedded. It will be embedded inside of our gut to uh, monitor, for example, our uh, microbiome and to monitor how our health is progressing. It could be embedded in our brains even. Uh, And basically, it may be actually, there may be a point where it becomes inseparable from us. And that, in terms, will change the very meaning of the definition of being human. Not only at the sort of collective level as a species, but also at the personal level, because we're going to have possibly or very likely a much bigger diversification of the understanding of what it means to be uh, a human than we have right now.
0: So when you talk about um, computers becoming smarter than us, yeah. you're, you're talking about an AGI, general, an artificial general intelligence, right?
1: Uh, not necessarily. So the toothbrush example is artificial narrow intelligence. Uh, but, but as it gets to be smarter and smarter, there may be a point where it becomes artificial general intelligence, which is unlikely, but it's not impossible. And the distinction between the two is that artificial general intelligence basically is better than human, equal or better than human intelligence at everything, not only at one thing. So for example, a calculator nowadays is better than us in uh, calculations, in arithmetic and so, and so on, or mathematics. Uh, And, you know, you can have other examples like, let's say, a smart car may be better better than us at driving and so on and so on, but they are not better than us at, let's say, jeopardy or speaking or relationship advice, as you pointed out. And we would reach artificial general intelligence at the moment when a single machine uh, will be able to be better at everything uh, than us. <laughs> and why do you say an AGI is unlikely? Oh no, I was saying an AGI may be unlikely in in a toothbrush format, uh, because the toothbrush requires only so many particular skills or, or capabilities, only so many kinds of knowledge. So, so we, example,
0: rec- we would require the AGI for the singularity to occur. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, well, th- that's a good question. And there's a debate, but basically the idea is anything you can think of that humans do today, that machine would be equal or better at. So <laughs> it, it could be Jeopardy, it could be playing Go it could be playing cards it could be playing chess it could be driving a car it could be relationship advice it could be diagnosing a medical disease it could be doing accounting for your company it could be shooting a video it could be writing a paper it could be playing music or composing even music it could be painting a you know an artistic you know an impressionistic or other kind of piece of art it could be taking pictures equal or better than Henri Cartier-Bresson etc everything that we're proud of it would be equal or better at
0: and when do you believe we will we will see an agi and when would we see the singularity
1: Huh uh, so that <laughs> that's a good question i've kind of uh fluctuated a little bit on that and also, um, you see, first of all, to answer your question, depending on whether we have some kind of general sort of global scale disaster, uh, like it could be nuclear war, for example, right now the situation is getting pretty tense with North Korea per se. Uh, It could be some kind of extreme climate-related event, or it could be uh, a catastrophe caused by an asteroid impact. So falling short of any of those huge things that can change basically the face of the Earth, uh, I would say probably 2050, 2045-ish would be a good estimate.
0: So, for, for an AGI or for the singularity, or are you kind of putting them both in the same bucket
1: there? For the singularity. Now, we can reach human level intelligence probably by the late 2020s.
0: So, you uh, think we'll have an AGI within 12 years? Probably, yeah. All right. So, you're, you're but, on... Go ahead. But,
1: you know, the, the timeline to me uh, is not particularly crucial. To me, I'm a philosopher, so the timeline is is interesting, but the more important issues are always the philosophical ones, and they're generally related to the question of so what, right? What's, what are the implications? What happens next? It doesn't matter so much whether it's 12 years or 16 years or 20 years. I mean, it can matter in the sense that it could help us be more prepared rather than not, so that's good. But the question is, so what? What happens next? Those are the important issues. So, for example, let me give you another crucial technology that we're working on, which is life extension technology, trying to make humanity immortal, which is to say, we're not going to be immortal. We can still die, let's say, if we get run over by a truck or something like that. Uh, but we would not be likely to die from the general causes of deaths that we see today, which are usually uh, old age related. So as as a individual, I'm hoping that I will be there when we develop that technology. I'm not sure I will be still alive when we have it, but as a philosopher, what's more important to me is, so what, what happens next? So, yeah, I'm hoping I'll be there, but even if I'm not there, it's a very valid and important question to start considering and investigating right now before we are at that point, so that we are as intellectually and otherwise prepared for events like this as possible.
0: I think the best guesses are we would live to about sixty seven hundred and fifty That's how long it would take for some you know wily coyote kind of piano falling out of the top floor of a building and landing on you thing to happen to you actuarially speaking
1: right so and <laughs> so let's jump
0: point. into philosophy um
1: yeah,
0: okay you're of course familiar with Searle's chinese room question right. let me set that up for my readers and then uh, for the listeners and then uh, ask you to comment on it okay. so um It goes like this. There's a man, we'll call him the librarian, and he's in this room, this giant room that's full of all of these very special books. And uh, the man, the important part, the man does not speak any Chinese, absolutely no Chinese. But people slide him questions under the door that are written in Chinese, and he has this thing that he does. He gets their question, he finds the book that has the first symbol on the spine, and he finds that book, and he pulls it down, and he looks up the second symbol. And when he finds a second symbol, it says, "Go to book number you know two four six oh one and so he goes and finds book two four six oh one looks up the third symbol, then the fourth and the fifth and the sixth all the way to the end and when he gets to the end, the final book says, "Copy this down so he he copies these little these 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 makes these lines and he doesn 't even understand what they are slides it under the door back to the person posing it uh, the Chinese speaker, the Chinese speaker picks it up and reads it, and it 's just brilliant I mean it is absolutely over the top, it's, you know, it's a haiku and it rhymes and all this other stuff. So the question, the kind of the philosophical question is does that man understand Chinese? Now, a, a traditional computer answer might be yes. I mean, the room after all passes the Turing test. Somebody outside sliding questions under the door would assume that uh, there's a Chinese speaker on the other side because the, the answers are so perfect. But kind of at an at a, at, a, at, a, at a kind of a gut level the idea that this person underspends Chinese when they don't know if they're talking about cholera or coffee beans or what have you seems uh, a bit of a stretch and of course th- this th- the punchline of the thing is that's all a computer can do all a computer can do is is you know uh, manipulate ones and zeros in memory it can just go to book to book and look stuff up but it doesn't understand anything and with no understanding. How can you have any AGI? Mm-hmm.
1: So let me ask you this. How do you know that that's not exactly what's happening right now in my hand, in my head? How do you know that, you know, me speaking English to you right now is not the exact process you describe?
0: Don't know. But the point of the, the setup is, um, is if you are just that, then you don't actually understand what we're talking about. You're just cleverly answering things that, uh, you know, it's all deterministic. There's, there's no, quote, nobody home. So if that is the case, it doesn't invalidate any of your answers, but it certainly limits uh, what you're able to do.
1: Well, you see, that's a, that's a question that relates very much uh with consciousness right it, it relates to consciousness and you know are you aware of what you're doing and and things like that and what well, is consciousness in the first place let,
0: let's let's with? let's divide that up because strictly speaking it isn't consciousness is subjective experience i have an experience of yes. doing x which yes. is a completely different thing than i had an intellectual understanding of x so just the AGI part, the simple part of does the man in the room understand what's going on or, well, well, let, or not? let's be
1: careful here then. Okay, so what do you mean by understand? Because you could say, I'm playing chess against the computer. Do I understand the playing of chess better than a computer? I mean, what do you mean by understand? Like, is it not understanding that the computer can play equal or better chess than me?
0: The computer does not understand chess in, in the meaningful sense that we kind of have to get at. An AGI requires that. Um, you know, one of the things humans do very well is we generalize from experience. And we, right. we do that because we find things are similar to other things, and we right. recognize that. And we understand, aha, this is similar to that, and so forth. Um, right. A computer... Doesn't really understand how to play chess. It's arguable that the computer is even playing chess, but putting putting that word aside, the computer does not understand it. And so the computer that that program is never going to figure out baccarat um, because it it doesn't you know any more than it can figure out uh, how 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 many coffee beans Colombia should export next year. It, it it just doesn't have any awareness right. at all. It's it's a simple it's it's. It's like a clockwork. You wind a clock, and it tick tock, tick tock, tick tock, and it tells you the time. But but and, and, but and we we progressively add additional gears to the clockwork again and again and again. And and the thesis of what you seem to be saying is that eventually you add enough gears so that when you wind this thing up, it's smarter than us, and it can do anything. It can do absolutely anything that we can do. And and I, I find that to be that to be a, that to be a an, at least an unproven assumption, let alone perhaps a fantastic one.
1: Right. So I agree with you on the part that it's unproven, and I agree with you that it may or may not be a, an issue. But it depends about what you're, what you're going for here, right? Because, and it depends about the, on the computer you're referring to, because we have the new software that was invented by AlphaGo, uh, DeepGo to play golf. Uh, And that actually learned to play the program exactly based on the previous games. That's to say on the previous experience played by other players. And then that same kind of approach of learning from the past and coming up with new creative solutions to the future was then implemented uh, in a bunch of other fields, uh, including bioengineering, including um, medicine, uh, and, and, and so on and so on. So when you say the computer will never be able to calculate how many beans that company needs means for the next coffee beans uh, that company needs for the next season, actually it can. And that's, that's why it's getting more and more generalized intelligence. Well,
0: Let me ask that question in a slightly different way. So I have, um, hypothetically, a cat food dish that measures out cat food for my cat. And it learns based on the weight of the food in it, you know, the right amount to put out. And if my cat eats a lot, it puts more out. If the cat eats less, yeah. it puts less out. Yeah. yeah, So that is a learning algorithm that is, um, that is an artificial intelligence and it, it is a learning one. And it's really no different than AlphaGo. Right. I mean, so what do you think happens from my like cat I dish? I
1: take issue with, with you well, saying that it's really not different from Alpha. Hold on. I'm,
0: i, I I really wanna know what, let me finish the question. I'm, I'm eager to hear what you have to say. What okay. is, what happens between the cat food AI and AlphaGo and an AGI? At what point does something different happen? Does, at some point, why, wh- where does that break? And that's just not a series of similar technologies.
1: So let me answer your question this way. When you have a baby born, It's totally dumb, stupid, blind, and deaf. It lacks complete self-awareness. It's unable to differentiate between itself and its environment. And it lacks complete self-awareness for probably the first, arguably, year and a half to two years. And there's a number of psychological tests um, that can be administered as the the child develops. Uh, Usually girls, by the way, do about Three to six months better, or they develop personal awareness faster uh, and earlier than boys on average. But let's say the average age is about a year and a half to two years. So, and and that's a very crude estimation, by the way. The development of AI would not be exactly the same, but there will be parallels. So, the question you're raising is a very good question. I don't have a good answer because you know that can only happen with like the direct observational data which we don't have right now to answer your question i mean right so let's say tomorrow we develop artificial general intelligence how would we know that how can we test for that right we don't know we we don't we're not even sure how we can e- evaluate that right because just as you suggested it could be just a dumb algorithm uh, processing just like your algorithm is processing how much cat food it should uh, provide to your cat. And it can lack complete self-awareness, but while claiming that it has self-awareness. So how do we check for that? And the answer is, you know, we it's very hard it, right now we can't i mean you don't know that i even have self-awareness right but it, but again
0: those are two different things right self-awareness is one thing and agi is easy to test for right uh you give a, a program a list of tasks a, a human yeah. can do you, you say here's what i want you to do i want you to figure out the best way to make espresso i want you to find uh the waffle yeah, i mean it's, it's a series of tasks it's yeah. there's there's nothing subjective about it it's completely objective Yes. So, what has happened between the cat, food, the, the cat food example to the AlphaGo to the AGI along that spectrum? What changed? Was there some emergent property? Was there some, some, something that happened that, that because you, you said the AlphaGo thing is different than my cat food dish, but yes, like in a philosophical is. sense, how?
1: It is different in the sense that it can learn. That's the key difference. So does my cat food
0: thing. It it gives a cat more food some days. If the cat's eating less, it cuts the cat food back.
1: Right, But, but, but you're talking just about cat food, but that's what children do too, is my point, right? Children know nothing when they come into this world. And slowly, they start learning more and more, and they start reacting better, and they start improving, and eventually, they start self-identi- self-identifying. Eventually, they become conscious. Eventually, they develop awareness of all the things, not only within themselves, but around themselves, etc. And And that's my point, is that it's a similar process. I don't have the exact mechanism to break down for you. I see.
0: So let me ask a
1: different question. So
0: nobody knows uh, how the brain works, right? I mean, right. and we don't even know how thoughts are encoded. I mean, we, we just use this ubiquitous term brain activity, but we don't know how, uh, you know, when I ask you, what was the color of your first bicycle? And you can like answer that immediately, even though you've probably never thought about it, nor, nor do you have some part of your brain where you store first bicycles or something. Yeah. So we don't, we don't know any of that. We, we certainly don't know. Um, so assuming we don't know that, and therefore we don't really know how it is that we happen to be intelligent, by what basis do you say, oh, we're going to build a machine that can can do something we don't even know how we do, and even put a timeline on it to say, and it's going to happen in 12 years?
1: So there's a number of ways to answer your question. So one is we don't necessarily need to know. I mean, we don't know how we create intelligence when we have babies, too. But we do it. How did it happen? It happened through evolution. So, likewise, we have what's called evolutionary algorithms, right? Which is basically algorithms that learn to learn. And the key point is that, as Dr. Stephen Wolfram uh, proved years ago in his seminal work, Mathematica, from very simple things, very complex patterns can emerge. I mean, look at our universe. It emerged from tiny, little, very simple things. Actually, I'm interviewing Lawrence Krauss next week. He says that it emerged from nothing, right? So from nothing, you had the universe, which has everything, according to him, at least. So, and and we don't know how we create intelligence in the baby's case. We just do it. Just like you don't know how you grow your nails or you don't know how you grow your hair, but you do it. Right, so likewise, just one of the many different paths that we can get to that level of intelligence is through evolutionary algorithms uh, uh, another part, and by the way, this is kind of what 's sometimes referred to as the black box problem, and uh, alphago is is a is a bit of an example of that, so there are certain things we know and there's certain things we don't know that are happening, just like when I interviewed uh, David ferrucci, who was the the team leader behind Watson, when we were talking with Kim, how does Watson get this right this answer right, and that answer wrong, his answer is i don't I don't really know exactly right because there are so many complicated things coming in together to produce an answer that after a certain level of complexity it becomes very tricky to follow the causal chain of events right so Yes, it is possible to develop intelligence uh, and and the the best sort of example for that is us. I mean, unless you believe in that sort of first mover, the sort of the, the God is a creator kind of thing that somebody created us, you can say we kind of came out of nothing. We evolved to have both consciousness and intelligence. So likewise, why not? have the same process only at a different stratum, in a different strata. Uh, so right now we're biologically based. Uh, basically it's uh, DNA code replicating itself. We have A, C, T, and G. Uh, and alternatively, is it inconceivable that we can have this with a binary code or or even if not binary, some other kind of mathematical code. So you can have intelligence evolve, be it silicon-based, be it, you know, photon-based, be it even organic processor-based, be it, you know, quantum computer-based, what have you, right? So are you saying that there could be no other stratum and no other way that could ever hold intelligence other than us? And then my question to you will be, well, what's the evidence of that of that claim, because I would say we have the evidence that it's happened once, we could therefore presume that it could not be necessarily limited to only once, but we're not that special, you know, but it could actually possibly happen again and more than once.
0: Right, I mean, it's, a, it's certainly a tenable hypothesis, but Singularians for the most part don't treat it as an, a, a hypothesis, they treat it as a matter of faith. They say right. we That's have That's why
1: I'm not w- such a good singularitarian. <laughs> we ha- they say
0: they say we have achieved consciousness in an AG, you know, an AGI. We have a general intelligence. Um, therefore we must be able to build one. And you don't generally apply that same logic to anything else in life, right? There is a solar system, therefore we must be able to build one. There, I mean, there is exactly. a third dimension, we must be able to build one. And, and like in almost nothing else in life do you do it. And yet, and yet people who talk about the singularity and are willing to put a date on it, by the way, th- th- there's nothing up for debate. even though all of the things that are required for it are, are completely unknown how, how we achieve them.
1: Let me, let me give you Daniel Dennett's uh, take on, on things, for example. He says that consciousness doesn't exist, that it's a, it's mm-hmm. a self-delusion. And he actually makes a a very, very good argument uh, about it, per se. I've been trying to get him on my podcast for a while. But he says it's total self-fabrication, self-delusion. It doesn't exist. It's besides the point. Right. And that's right, but he doesn't deny
0: of, he doesn't deny that we're intelligent, though. He just says that all, all we call consciousness is brain activity. But he doesn't say, Oh, we're not even really we don't really have an a, a general intelligence either. Obviously, exa- we're intelligent. Exactly,
1: exactly. But, but that's but that's kind of like isn't that kind of what you're trying to imply with, with the machines? Because they will be intelligent in the sense that they will be able to problem solve anything that we're able to problem solve, as we pointed out that, before, whether it's chess, whether it's cat food, mm-hmm. whether it's Playing, um, you know, uh, or composing uh, the the tenth symphony.
0: Well, that's that, the point. Okay. Well, that is at least uh, unquestionably the theory, and um, sure. so let's go from there. Talk to me about um, transhumanism. That, you write a, a, a lot about that. What do you think we will be able to do? And if you're if you're willing to, when do you think we'll be able to do it? And I mean, a man with a pacemaker is already a transhuman, right? He can't live without it.
1: I would say all of us are already cyborgs, depending on your definition. But if you say that the cyborg is, a, is an organism consisting of, let's say, organic and inorganic uh, parts working together in, in a single unit, then I would answer that if you have been vaccinated, you're already a cyborg if you're wearing glasses or contact lenses you're already a cyborg if you're wearing clothes and you can't survive without them or shoes you're already a cyborg right because let's say for me i'm severely short sighted so uh i'm like minus 7.25 or something crazy like that i'm almost kind of blind without my contacts right but almost nobody knows that unless people who listen to these interviews because I wear contacts and for all intensive purposes, uh, I am as I capable as anybody else, but take off my contacts and I'll be blind. And therefore, you have one single unit between me and that inorganic material that basically I cannot survive without. I mean, 200 years ago or 500 years ago, I'd probably be dead by now. Right? Because I wouldn't be able to get food. I wouldn't be able to survive in the world with that kind of severe short-sightedness. And the same with vaccinations, by the way. And we know that the vast majority of the population, at least in the developed world, has at least one, and in most cases, actually a number of different vaccines already You know, by the time you're two years old. And viruses, basically viruses are the carriers, the carriers for the vaccines and viruses straddle that line that gray area between living and non-living things the 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 sort of you know hard to classify things right and they become a part of you basically you carry that vaccine you carry those antibodies in most cases uh, for the rest of your life so you know i could say we are according to that definition we're all cyborgs already
0: And so, what do you think? I mean, that's 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 splitting uh, a hair. In, in, in a in a very real sense, though, uh, it, it seems from your writing, you think we're going to be doing much more radical things than that. that
1: absolutely, as you absolutely. said
0: earlier, call into question whether we're even human anymore. So, like, what are those things, and why does that affect our definition of well, of, of well? Human?
1: Let me let me give you another example. So. I don't know if you've seen in the news, but or your audience has seen in the news uh, maybe a couple months ago, the Chinese tried to modify uh, human embryos with CRISPR uh, gene editing technology. So we are not right now at the stage where, you know, it's been almost 40 years since we had the first in vitro babies. At the time, basically what in vitro meant was that you do the fertilization outside of the womb into a petri dish or something like that. And then you watch the division process begin. And then you select by basically visual inspection what looks like to be the best fertilized egg, simply by visual examination. And that's the egg that you would implant. Today, we don't just observe we actually can pre-select and not only that we can actually go in and start changing things so it's just like uh you know first you when you're born you start reading the alphabet uh, or start learning the alphabet rather a b c d then you start reading full words then you start reading full sentences and then you start writing yourself we're doing currently exactly that with genetics right we were starting to just identify the letters of the alphabet maybe 30 or 40, 50 years ago. Then we started reading slowly. We read the human genome about 15 years ago. And now we're slowly starting to learn to write. And so the implication of that is this. What happens to you or or rather, how does the meaning of what it means to be human change when you can Change your sex, color, race, age, and physical attributes. Because that's the bottom line. When we can go and make changes at the DNA level of, a, of an organism, you can change all those parameters. It's just like, you know, programming, right? It, in computer science, it's zero and ones. In genetics, it's A, C, T, and G, four letters, but it's the same principle. And in in one case you're programming uh, a software program for a computer, in the other case you're programming living organisms. So again, but
0: in that in that in that example though, everybody, no matter what race you are, you're still a human. No matter what gender you are, you're still a human. No matter all those things you said,
1: qualify human, right? So let's be more specific. So right now when you say human, what you mean actually is homo sapiens. right? But homo sapiens has a number of very specific physical attributes. When you start changing the DNA structure, you can actually change those attributes. So to the point where the result doesn't carry those physical attributes anymore. So are you then homo sapiens anymore? And from a biological point of view, the answer most likely will be depending on how far have you gone. And, and you know, there is no break point. Like different people will have a different uh, red line to cross, you know, for some people just a little bit. So let's say um, you and your wife or partner want to have a baby and you carry... Both of you happen to be carriers of a certain kind of uh, genetic disease that you want to avoid. So you want to make sure that before you conceive that baby, uh, the, the fertilized egg doesn't carry that genetic material. And that's all you care about, that's fine. But someone else would say, well, that's your red line. My red line is that I actually want to give that baby the, the good looks of Brad Pitt I want to give it the brain of Stephen Hawking, uh, and I want to give it the strength of a weightlifter, for example, uh, or something like that. And each person who is doing that, making that choice would go for different things and would, would have different attributes that they would choose to accept or not to accept. And therefore you would start having that diversification that I talked about in the beginning. And that's even before you start bringing in things like neurocognitive implants, uh, et cetera, et cetera, which would be basically the merger between men and machine, right? Which basically means you can have both parallel developments of biotech or genetics, Uh, our biological evolution and development accelerated on the one hand. And on the other hand, you can have the the merger of that with the acceleration and evolution and improvement of uh, computer technology and neurotech. And when you put those two things together, you end up with a final entity, which can be nothing like what we are today and definitely would not fit the definition of being human.
0: Do you worry at some level that, you know, it's taken us 5,000 years of human civilization to kind of come up with this idea that there are things called human rights, there there are these things you don't do to a person no matter what, that they, that you are born with them and because you're human, you, know, you, you have these rights. Do you worry that, for better or worse, that what you're talking about will erode that, that we will lose this sense of human rights, because we we lose some demarcation of what a human is.
1: Okay, so that's a very, very complicated uh, question. I would suggest people read uh, Yuval Harari's uh, book, uh, Homo Deus, on that topic, and and the previous one was called Sapiens, and those two are probably the best two books that I've read in the last 10 years. Uh, but basically the idea of human rights is, is, is an idea that was born just a couple hundred years ago. Uh, it came to exist with, uh, you know, humanism and, uh, especially liberal humanism. And right now the way, if you, if you see how it's playing out, humanism is, is kind of, uh. Taking what religion used to do in the sense that religion used to put God in the center of everything, and then since we were His creation, uh everything else was created for us uh to to serve us, so for example the animal world et etc et etc and we used to have the Ptolemaic uh, idea of the universe where you know the earth was the center and all those things. Now, what humanism is doing is putting the human in the center of the universe and saying humanity has this primacy above everything else just because of our very nature. Just because you're human, you have human rights, right? I would say That's an interesting story. But if we care about that story, we need to push it even further, right? So in our present context, how is that working out for everyone else other than humanity? Well, the moment when we created humanism and invented human rights, basically we made humanity divine. So we took the divinity from God and gave it to humanity. But we downgraded everybody else. So... Animals, which back in the day, let's say the hunter gatherer society, we considered ourselves to be equal and on par with the animals. Because you see, one day I would kill you and I would eat you, the next day maybe a tiger would eat me. And that's how the world was. But now we downgraded all the animals to machines. They don't have consciousness, they don't have any feelings. You see, uh, they lack self awareness, and therefore, we can enslave and kill them any way we wish and we like. And so, as a result, you know, we pride ourselves for human rights and things like that. And yet, we enslave and kill 70 to 75 billion animals every year and 1.3 trillion sea organisms like fish annually, right? So, the question then is, if we care so much about rights, why should they be limited only to human rights? Are we saying that other living organisms are incapable of suffering? Because I'm a dog owner. I have a 17 and a half year old dog. She's on her last leg. She actually had a stroke last weekend. Um, And I can tell you that she has taught me the full, that she possesses the full spectrum of happiness and suffering that I do, pretty much. Uh, even things like jealousy uh, and so on. <laughs> she, she demonstrated to me multiple times, right? And, and yet we today use that idea of humanism and human rights to defend ourselves and enslave everybody else. So I would suggest it's time to expand that and to say first to our fellow uh, animals that we need to include them, that they have their own rights, first of all. And second of all, that possibly rights should not be limited only to organic organisms and they should not be called human or animal rights, but possibly should become intelligence rights or even beyond intelligence any kind of sort of uh, organism that can exhibit things like suffering and happiness and pleasure and pain, right? Because obviously th- there is a different level of intelligence between me and my dog. We would hope, but she's able to suffer as much as I am, and I've seen it. So, and, and that's true, especially more for like whales and and great apes and stuff like that, which we have brought to the brink of extinction right now. So. You see, we want to be special. That's what religion does to us. And that's what humanism did with human rights. You know, we religion taught us that we're special because God created us in his own image. Then humanism said, there is no God. We are the God. So we took the place of God and we took his throne. And we said, we're above everybody else. That's a good story, but it's nothing more than a story. It's a myth.
0: I saw you're you're a vegan, correct? Yes. So, how far down, and then we can get back to the uh, to the AI component here. But I'm curious, how far down? So, y- you have consciousness, and then below that, you have sentience, which is, of course, a misused word. Uh, people think people use sentience to mean intelligence. So that's sapience, But sentience yeah. is the ability to feel something. So, in your world, would you you would extend rights at some level all the way down to anything that can feel?
1: Yeah. And look, I've been a vegan for just over a year and something, a year and a couple of months. So let's say 14 months. Um, So just like any other human being, I have been and still am very imperfect. Um, Now, I don't know exactly how far we uh, we should spread that to expand, but I would say we should stop immediately at the level that we can Easily observe that we're causing suffering. So, if you go to a butcher shop, uh, especially industrialized farming butcher shop, where they kill something like, you know, in some of those places, they kill 10,000 animals per day. Uh, and it's all m- mechanized, right? If you see that stuff in front of your eyes, it's impossible not to admit that those animals are suffering to me. So that's the, at least the first step. So I don't know how far we should go, but we should start with the, with the first steps and the first steps are very visible. Mm-hmm. So, so
0: do you believe, um, what, do you, what, what do you think about consciousness? Or do you believe consciousness exists uh, unlike Dan Dennett? And if so, uh, where do you think it comes from?
1: Now you're putting me on the spot. I have no idea where it comes from, first of all. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I I am atheist, but if there's one religion that I have very strong sympathies towards, that would be Buddhism. And I particularly value the practice of meditation. And so. I don't know. The question is, when I meditate, and you know it only happens so rarely that I can get into some kind of a very nice, deep meditation. But is that consciousness mine, or am I part of it? I don't know. So I, I have no idea where it comes from. I think there is something like consciousness. I don't know how it works, and I, I honestly don't know if we are part of it. Or it is a part of us. Is it at least
0: a tenable hypothesis that an AGI, that, to, that a machine would need to be conscious to, to be an AGI?
1: So I would say yes, of course. But it depends how you, because the, the, the next step immediately is that how do we know that that machine has consciousness or not? right and that's what i'm struggling with because that's one of the implications is like okay the moment you accept or you commit to that kind of definition we're only going to have agi if it has consciousness right because that's the implication right if i if i say there's no agi unless you have consciousness then the question is how do we know if and when we've had consciousness so an agi that's programmed to say i have consciousness you know, how do you know if it's telling the truth and it's really conscious or not? So that's what I'm struggling with to, to be more precise in your answers. And mind you, I have the luxury of being a philosopher. So I, I don't, and also that's kind of like the negative too. I'm not a, an engineer or, or, or a neuroscientist. So, but you I can think say consciousness is re- sense
0: you can say consciousness is required for an AGI without having to worry about, yes. well, how do we measure it or not? I mean, that's, yes. that's a completely yes. different thing. And if consciousness yeah. is required for an AGI um, and we don't know where human consciousness comes from, that at least should give us an enormous amount of pause when we start talking about, you know, the month and day that we're going to hit the singularity, right?
1: Right. And I agree with you on that entirely, which is why I'm not so crazy about the timelines and uh-huh. I'm, I'm staying away and I'm generally on the skeptical end of things. And by the way, for the last seven years of my journey, I have been becoming more and more skeptical because there's also other reasons or ways that, that, that the singularity, first of all, the future never unfolds the way we think it will, in my opinion. And there's always those black swan events that change everything. So, uh, and, and there's issues when you extrapolate, which is why I always uh, stay away from extrapolation. Let me give you two examples. So the easy example is when you have positive uh, or, or let's say negative extrapolation. So we had people such as Lord Kelvin who wrote a book in the late 1890s and he was the, the president of the British Royal Society, one of the smartest people. I uh, wrote a book, how heavier than air aircraft are absolutely impossible to build. The great, uh, Orson G. Wells, uh, no, uh, H. G. Wells, sorry, uh, wrote just in 1902 that you know heavier-than-air aircraft were totally impossible to build, and you know he's a science fiction writer, and yet a year later the Wright brothers, two bicycle makers, uh, basically who never read probably uh, wrote Lord Kelvin's book and maybe didn't even read any of the H. G. Wells science fiction novels, proved them both wrong. So people were extrapolating negatively from the past. Look, we've tried to fly since the time of Icarus, and Icarus, the legend or the myth of Icarus is a warning to us all. And we're never going to be able to fly, but we did fly. And so we didn't fly for thousands of years until one day we flew. So that's one kind of extrapolation that went wrong. And that's the easy one to see. The harder one is the following, the opposite, which is called positive extrapolation. So from 1903 to, let's say, late 1960s, we went from the Wright Brothers to the moon. And people said, and amazing people said, like Arthur C. Clarke, well, if we made it from 1903 to the late 1960s to the moon, by 2002, we would be beyond Mars. We would be outside of our solar system, right? Unfortunately, and that's positive extrapolation based on very good data for maybe let's say 65 years from 1903 to 1968 very good data you saw tremendous progress in uh, aerospace technology we went to the moon several times in fact and, and so on and so on so it was logical to extrapolate that we would be by mars and beyond today but actually the opposite happened. Not only did we not reach Mars by today, we're actually unable to get back to the Moon even, right? So, as as Peter Thiel says in his book, you know, we were promised uh, flying cars and jetpacks, but all we got was 140 characters. So, in other words, beware extrapolations because they're true until they're not true. <laughs> and you don't know when they're going to stop being true. And that's the nature of black swans or things. And and that's, I think, the nature of the future. To me, it's inherently unknowable. It's, It's always good to have extrapolations, and it's always good to have ideas and to have diversity of scenarios, right? That's another thing which I agree with you upon, that singularitarians tend to embrace a single view of the future or a single path to the future. I have a problem with that myself. I think uh, the, the, there's a cone of, future, of possible futures. You know, there's certainly limitations, but there's a cone of possibilities, and we're aware of only a fraction of it. So we can extrapolate only in a fraction of it because we have unknown unknowns, and we have uh, black swan phenomena, which can change everything dramatically. And I even listed uh, three uh, disaster scenarios like asteroid impact, Uh, uh, ecological collapse or nuclear war that can also change things dramatically, right? So there are many things that we don't know, that we don't control, and that we're not even aware of that can and probably will change the actual future from the future that we think will happen today. Do you believe,
0: last philosophical question, and then I'd like to chat about what you're working on. Uh, Do you believe that humans have free will?
1: Well, you see, uh, yes. So I'm a philosopher. And again, just like uh, the sort of the future, there are limitations, right? So all the possible futures stem from the cone of possible future possibilities derived from our present. Likewise, our uh, ability to choose, to make decisions, to take action, have very strict limitations, and yet there is a realm of possibilities that's entirely up to us. Um, Or at least that's what I'm inclined to think, even though most scientists that I meet and interview on my podcast are actually one level or one degree or another degree of determinist.
0: So would an AGI need to have free will in order to exist?
1: Yes, of course.
0: And where do you think human free will comes from? Is there, I mean, if, if every effect had a cause, then every decision had you know, a cause presumably in the brain, whether it's electrical or chemical or or what have you, like, where do you think it
1: well, comes so it from? Could, yeah. It could come from quantum mechanics, for example. Right. So, so wh- that
0: only he- gets you randomness that doesn't get you somehow escaping the laws of physics. Does it?
1: Yes. But, but, randomness can be sort of living cat and dead cat outcome at least metaphorically speaking right so you and you don't know which one would it would be right until that moment is there uh and and the other thing is let's say um you have fluid dynamics so with uh the laws of physics, we can predict how a particular system of gas or anything like that would behave uh, within the laws of fluid dynamics. But it's impossible to predict how a single molecule or atom will behave within that system. In other words, so if the laws of the universe and the laws of physics set the realm of possibilities, then within that realm, you can still have free will, right? So uh, we are such tiny minuscule little parts of the system as individuals that we are more akin to atoms, if not smaller particles than that. And therefore we can still be unpredictable. And just like it's unpredictable by the way with quantum mechanics to say, Uh, where the photon is located, and if you start, uh, or or not photon, but electron, and and if you try to observe it, then you're already impacting on the outcome. Uh, So you're kind of predetermining it actually when you try to observe it because you become a part of the system. But if you're not observing it, you can create a realm of possibilities where it is likely to be, but you don't know exactly where it is. And within that realm, you get you get your kind of free will.
0: And then, final question: Tell us what you're working on, and uh, what's exciting to you. What you're reading about. Um, I see you. You write a lot about movies. Are there any um, science fiction movies that that you think uh, are, are good watchers to kind of inform people on this topic?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, just to, to talk so, about that for a moment.
1: Right. So. Uh, let me ask, answer backwards. So in terms of movies, it's been a while since I watched it, but I actually even wrote a review on it. And it was one of the movies that I really enjoyed watching by the Uh and it's called Cloud Atlas. Um, and I don't think that movie was very successful at all, to be honest with you. Um, I, I'm not even sure if they managed to recover the money they invested in it. But in my opinion, it was top 10 best movies I've ever seen in my life. Uh, because it had six plots. It had It's a sextet. So it had six plots uh, going, uh, progressing in a parallel sort of fashion in six different timelines. So six things happening in diff- six different locations in six different epochs uh with six different timelines with tremendous uh actors and and uh touching on a lot of those uh, future technologies and and even the meaning of being human uh what separates us from you know the others and and so on and so on so i would suggest people check out cloud atlas uh one of my favorite movies uh and the the, pre- the the previous question you asked was uh, what am i working on mhm okay well to be honest um i just finished my first book like 3 months ago or something actually i launched it on january 23rd i think so i've been basically promoting my book traveling giving speeches um trying to raise awareness uh, about the issues and the fact that, in my view, we are very unprepared as a civilization, as a society, uh, and as the individuals, as businesses, as governments. We are, we are going to witness tremendous amount of change um, in the next several decades. And I think we're grossly unprepared. And I think depending on how we handle those changes with genetics, with robotics, with nanotech, with artificial intelligence, even if we never reach the level of artificial general intelligence, by the way. That's besides the point to me. Just the changes we're going to witness as a result of the biotech revolution uh, can actually put our whole civilization at risk. And they're not just only going to change the meaning of what it is to be human. They would put everything at risk. And all of those things converging together in the narrow span of several decades, basically, I think, create this crunch point, which could be what some people have called a pre-singularity filter, which is one possible answer to the Fermi paradox, which is to say uh, Enrico Fermi was this very famous Italian mathematician who uh, a few decades ago basically observed that there's I don't know, 200 billion uh, star uh, galaxies just in in sort of the observable realm of the universe. And each of those 200 billion galaxies has like, I don't know, 200 billion stars. And there's almost, in other words, endless number of planets, exoplanets like ours, which are located in the Goldilocks area where it's not too hot and it's not too cold and potentially can give birth to life. And then the question then is, well, if there's so many planets and so many stars and so many places where we can have life, then where's everybody? Where are all the aliens? And there's a diversity of answers to that question, but at least one of those uh, possible uh, scenarios of uh, something to explain this sort of paradox is that what's referred to as the pre-singularity filter, which is to say in each civilization, there comes a moment where its technological prowess surpasses its capacity to control it. And then possibly uh, it self-destructs. So in other words, what I'm saying is that that may be an occurrence that happens on a regular basis in the universe. It's one way to explain the Fermi paradox. And it's possibly the moment that we're approaching right now So it may be a moment where we go extinct like the dinosaurs, or if we actually get it right, which right now, to be honest with you, I'm kind of getting rather concerned about, uh, then uh, so if we get it right, we, we can actually populate the universe. We can spread throughout the universe. And as Konstantin Tsiolkovsky said, you know earth is the cradle of humanity but sooner or later you have to leave the cradle so hopefully in this century we would be able to leave the cradle but right now we're not prepared neither intellectually nor technologically not, nor philosophically nor ethically not in any way possible i think and well, that's why it's so important to get it right
0: and the name of your book is
1: conversations with the future 21 visions for the 21st century
0: All right, Nicola, it's been fascinating. And I really enjoyed our conversation. And I thank you so much for taking the time.
1: My pleasure, Byron.
0: If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, I host another podcast about artificial intelligence. It's a daily podcast called The AI Minute. And every day, it's a minute or two of reflections about artificial intelligence. It's available wherever you find your podcasts of choice But in addition, it's an Alexa skill, so it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.